Good morning, and the conversation begins here on 94 WIPL Sports Radio. My name's Peter Solomon, and a beautiful WIP day it promises to be. It's going to be hot. It's going to be hot most of the week. So hopefully you're somewhere nice and cool enjoying conversation here with us on 94 WIP. When we come back in just a bit, a couple of things. First of all, I want to take note of the passing of Batman Adam West, 88 years old. He died of leukemia this past Friday. He will be missed. Long before there was Michael Keaton, Val Kilmer, George Clooney, and all the rest, there was Adam West. It was a piece of my childhood and probably was a piece of yours as well. And when we come back, we're going to take note of the 14th anniversary of Mothers in Charge. Mothers in Charge, an organization working to prevent somebody's child, whether they're 6 or 60, somebody's child from being murdered, the victim of violence. All this and more when we come back here on 94 WIP. My name's Peter Solomon. More good conversation in just a bit. And we're back. It's conversation. My name's Peter Solomon. And my first guest this morning for conversation, Dorothy Johnson-Spite, founder, director, Mothers in Charge. Good morning, Dorothy Spite. Good morning, Peter. Well, pleasure to have you. And it's a pleasure to take note of the fact that it's the 14th anniversary of Mothers in Charge. And while it's an amazing accomplishment, you're probably the head of an, the only nonprofit organization I know of who can't wait to close up business. That's true. That is so true. <laughs> Unfortunately, it doesn't look like that's going to happen anytime soon, but that's the goal and that's the mission. We hope to one day not have to exist because of families who are losing loved ones to violence. It will be so nice when you can sell the furniture. But that's another, that's another discussion. All right, Dorothy, what is Mothers in Charge for folks who don't know? Mothers in Charge is a grassroots community-based organization that I started uh, 14 years ago after the death of my son, colleague Jabbar Johnson, who was shot to death over a parking space. So it's a group of mothers, grandmothers, aunts, and sisters, most of whom have lost a son, daughter, or loved one to violence. Not everyone uh, that's a member has lost someone. Some people are really just uh, supporting the mission and are still a part of the organization that helps to make things happen uh, with the work that we do. And what is it you folks do? Well, I mean, I think initially our goal was to support families who have been affected by violence, to help them through the grief process and things like that. But as the organization grew, we realized that we wanted to be a part of the solution. So there are many different types of programs that we do, everything from working with children that are at risk, um, anger management, um, community-based programs and, and, and workshops and things that we do, teaching alternatives to violence. But most recently, I guess in the last seven, eight years or more, uh, we have done a lot of work with um, folks who are incarcerated, realizing that um, oftentimes some of the children that we're losing are children of parents that are incarcerated. So um, many years ago, I guess about eight or nine years ago, we got a letter from a woman whose son was murdered while she was incarcerated. We went there and started doing work with women at Riverside Correctional Facility and a little bit later started working with the juveniles that were up on State Road. Uh, Everything from mentoring the juveniles to teaching women better parenting skills and things like that. So we've kind of come full circle in terms of looking at the issue of violence in terms of supporting families and now trying to really find ways that we can help address the issue. Well, there's that old thing, children learn what they live, and in this case, children who live with violence grow up to be violent, don't they? 
Absolutely, absolutely. We're definitely products of our environment. All right. How did it happen for you, Dorothy? How did you lose your son? Um, there was an argument. A colleague had uh, moved in with his brother on uh, American Street. Uh, I always say that's strange that he had to die on American Street. Uh, there was an argument about the parking space. Uh, actually, a friend of colleagues and colleague kind of stepped in to break up the argument. And a day or so later, two days later, the person who he had argued with about the parking space, I understand, got very enraged and was drinking and, you know, all of that on drugs or whatever. And colleague parked in back of the house and walked around to the front of the house, and he came out of his house and shot him seven times. Wow. Um, that's, that's a horrible, horrible, every parent's nightmare story. Absolutely. It's, it's, it's a nightmare that you never, ever wake up from. How did you keep from screaming or going crazy yourself? I think I did. I think I did. initially I did go crazy and didn't want to live. I mean, it's, it's the, as you said, it's the worst thing in the world to have to bury a child, and especially when someone's made a conscious decision to take that person's life. So uh, initially I didn't think I would survive colleagues' death. But Mothers in Charge has kind of been that vehicle to help me get through, to help me channel my pain and my anger, my tears, and everything that I felt initially. It was a way that I could, I guess I had a purpose to get up. I was with other folks who, other mothers and grandmothers who understood we were all kind of in the same club, a club that no one wanted to be a part of, and we supported each other. And I think that was the, really the way that I and others were able to survive, that oh, we had each other. What a wonderful thing to do with your rage. Um, I... A lesser person might have gone and gotten a gun and done something to the man who shot your son. To be honest with you, Peter, I thought about that. I really did. Mm. Um, what happened to the man who shot your son? He was convicted. He was found guilty. Actually, um, he had committed a murder prior to my son's murder. So 19-year-old Justin Donnelly was murdered by him in July. And five months later, he murdered my son. So um, when I saw the mother of Justin on TV asking for help for someone to come forward with information, I felt, felt, felt a connection with her, and I went to where I saw her standing on that commercial. And we sat down and talked, and we found out that the same person, and he was still at large, who murdered her son in July, also murdered a colleague. And so he eventually uh, he was charged with both murders, and he was sentenced to, to, to two life sentences uh, in prison, and that's where he is. Uh, that's where he will remain, I guess, until uh, till they carry him out in a body bag. So that's where he is. Um, we went through the trials together. We've been kind of joined at the hip. Ruth Darling's a white woman that lived in um, the Alney section of Philadelphia, who I probably would have never have known or never had the opportunity and the pleasure uh, of meeting under horrible circumstances, but her and I have become the best of friends, and she's a part of Mothers in Charge and still remains a part of Mothers in Charge uh, years after the death of our children. So, and she's, you know, part of the founding of the organization, along with other mothers who had lost children. How did this man manage to be on the street to commit a second murder? That's a good question. Um, you know, that's... I guess it's the, the flaws in the criminal justice system. He was never arrested. People, uh, I understand people in the community knew he had murdered Justin Donnelly, 
but no one came forward. Ruth always says if maybe someone had came forward when, when Justin was murdered, uh, maybe Colleague would still be alive. But, uh, you know, that no snitching uh, thing was a real strong piece in the communities, more so than I think it is now. Maybe it still does exist on some level. On a great, according to the Philadelphia police, it still exists strongly because that's why they aren't able to solve a lot of murders because people just don't come forward with the information when they know someone has been murdered and people continue to live and walk in their communities uh, not being held accountable for what they do. So I think that's one of the reasons we continue to see what we see in many parts of North Philadelphia, Southwest, all over Philadelphia. You think, though, no snitching is a question of honor in a community or fear in a community? I think it's both, Peter. I think it's both. Uh, gosh. Um... What pays the bills for Mothers in Charge? We do a lot of fundraising. We do a lot of uh, all kinds of big sales and things initially, but we do have uh, support from grants. That, uh, we have a federal grant, and we have foundations that um, support our work, many foundations that understand the mission of our work and support it that way. But as most nonprofit organizations, we're constantly struggling to pay the bills and keep the lights on. But uh, through the generosity of many and the fundraising efforts we do, we've been able to sustain ourselves for the last 13 years, which is amazing, considering some of the challenges that we've, challenges that we've had. And considering that there are going to be future challenges with Washington cutting the federal budget, mm, mm. you worry? Yeah, I do. I do. I worry, I worry but... Um, I also have faith. <laughs> I believe, you know, uh, I believe there will be, you know, ways that we will be able to continue to to be the force in this city. And actually now across the country, we have 12 chapters of Mothers in Charge and other major cities across the country that are experiencing what we're experiencing here in Philadelphia. And um, we will continue to believe God will uh, provide a way, as he has thus far. Faith is very important to you, isn't it, Darcy? It is. It is what has sustained me and so many others. I don't know how I would have made it without my faith. Well, that faith is strong. Did you ever feel abandoned, though? Mm-hmm. I did. I think initially um, some will admit and some won't that um, I was angry with God. You know, how dare you? Uh, why me? And I learned to say, why not me? But um, the faith has sustained me, but initially, in many instances in the beginning, with the pain and the anger, the faith wasn't as strong as it had always been and as it is today. Um, There's something about murder and homicide and this type of death that challenges not only your faith, but every aspect of your belief systems. And um, mine truly was challenged to the point that I was like, okay, I've got no no rap for God. <laughs> Don't want to talk to him. This was actually my second child that I had lost, Peter. I lost a little girl um, years before a colleague was murdered. She died of bacterial meningitis. So just as I was probably trying to get over her death is when colleague was murdered. So, yeah. And you're listening to Conversation here on 94WIP. My name's Peter Solomon. My guest this morning is Dorothy Johnson-Spite. Founder, executive director, Mothers in Charge, an important organization here in Philadelphia and across the country 
working to stop that phenomena of mothers and grandmothers burying their children, whether the child is six or whether the child is 65. Losing a child is against the natural order of things and particularly painful when it comes to murder. Dorothy, what's happening for this 14-year celebration? Oh, we're going to have a ball. This is an annual fundraiser. Uh, The 14th anniversary will be held at the World Cafe Live. A little different this year. Normally we've had award dinners and sit-down dinners, but this year we're calling it Fun, Food, and Party with a Purpose. So we're going to have a VIP reception with dinner and all of that, but we're going to also have a concert and uh, a DJ playing spinning music and uh, a fashion show. Some of the mothers will walk with the pictures of their children, a fashion show with fashions provided by Macy's. The entertainment will be by a a Philadelphia group, um, old R&B group called Breakwater. Uh, Some of your listeners may be familiar with them. Um, They'll be performing and music by DJ Butch. So it's going to be a fun event. Um, They can get information on our website at mothersincharge.org. And they can also go on Eventbrite and purchase tickets. It's going to be a wonderful, wonderful evening. Did you ever think about selling Kleenex as part of the event? Because it's (laughs) going to trigger me some tears. (laughs) Yeah, we are... He's a, he's a, you know, joke about that. Like, we really ought to have stock in some of those Kleenex companies because, you know, we go through boxes and boxes at our office at 520 North Delaware Avenue and, and anywhere that we are oftentimes, uh, the tears come. But sometimes the tears and the laughter and, and all of that is kind of one thing that we do. We can laugh sometimes and cry at the same time, especially when we all get together and support one another, and that's what we'll be doing on um, June 21st, Wednesday, June 21st. Where are the men in all of this? The men are behind the scenes. I cannot say that we do not have men who support us. Um, I think oftentimes, like we do a lot of um, sharing of our pain and talking about our feelings and things like that in our weekly grief groups. and, And whenever we're out, wherever we are, we're talking about the pain of loss and I think that's more of a woman's thing. I mean, honestly, I think that women have an easier time talking about their emotions and their feelings than our men. So we've had times when we tried to bring men together for support group meetings and things like that, but uh, usually that um, those gatherings end up they're talking about sports and things like that okay. and not the pain, and that's okay because I think society says that men shouldn't share their pain and shouldn't talk about it, shouldn't even, you know, discuss pain and and in those kinds of uh, environments. And unfortunately, that's sad because men feel the same kind of hurt and pain we do, especially when they've lost a a child. But society says they shouldn't cry. And, you know, know, men start hearing that at a very early age, five, six, seven years, and you fall down and you skid your knee, get up, boy, don't cry. So I think that society in some ways have set men up in uh, ways that, oftentimes doesn't allow them to grieve the way that is healthy. Unhealthy grieving sometimes comes about with drinking or overworking and things like that because of the way, I guess, society has said they should grieve a loss. But they're there. They're behind the scenes. They help sell tickets. They, they help us with different things that we need, you know, strong arms for, or strong hearts. But um, 
yeah. We have men who are supporting us as well. And maybe that's an explanation why men die before women. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Certainly a tragic thing. Um, If you could sit down with President Trump right now, what would you do or what would you say to help him understand what you do and what has to change? Hmm. <laughs> well, it's kind of, I think you have to sit and talk with someone about changes and the things that, you know, you just mentioned with one who has an open heart to listen. So that's the tragedy. I think oftentimes that people that don't understand this, this journey or this walk or, or, or the environments that we sometimes find ourselves in are not interested because it doesn't affect them or they don't understand it because they haven't taken the time to be open to hear it. I mean, I think I would start off with, with I do with, as I do with anyone, talking about, if I'm talking particularly about mothers in charge, talk about the pain and the grief and the loss of having to bury a child. So anyone who's male or female, you know, who has given, uh, been a part of, giving birth, uh, to become a mom or a dad understands the love of a child, even if they don't understand the pain of the loss. So maybe I would start off by talking about that pain to see if we could kind of come together on a common ground with the love of a son or daughter and try to share what that pain is like when that son or daughter is no longer a part of your life because someone has taken their life. And while it's hard to imagine, it's even hard sometimes for me to put into words that kind of pain, because it's a pain that's almost, there's no words to describe. Um, I think maybe I would start there to get him to understand the things that need to happen in communities across this country where we see uh, so much violence. Okay, and when we come back after these messages with Dorothy Johnson-Spite, we're going to ask Dorothy what she sees needing to change. A real specific list, if possible, Dorothy. And we're talking with Dorothy Johnson-Spite, head, founder, executive director, Mothers in Charge. It's a national movement of women who have buried their children no matter what the child's age. My name's Peter Solomon. It's Conversation, the WIP Times, 622. And we're back. It's Conversation. My guest this morning, Dorothy Johnson-Spite, founder, executive director of a national movement, Mothers in Charge. My name's Peter Solomon. Okay, Dorothy, what needs to change? Well, that's a, that's a great question, Peter. So much needs to change. I guess, first of all, the hearts and minds of, of many need to change. And, 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 and one of the things that we're doing to help that uh, happen is that we are now looking and promoting and talking about homicide as a public health epidemic, a health crisis. Uh, it's the leading cause of death among African-American males. I should say men of color between the ages of 14 and 34. And so we are having conversations now everywhere we go and every, every person that we get to listen so that their minds and hearts can change, that it's truly an epidemic that we are losing so many young people across this country to violence, and especially gun violence. So we're having conversations with uh, elected officials, with the medical uh, folks in the medical field, because we believe that if you see this as a health crisis or a health epidemic, 
it will be treated that way. So if you think about different times, you know, in our, in, in our society that we've had health epidemics, whether if you're old enough to remember polio, which I'm almost there, or whether you're looking at Zika and different, you know, health crises that we've had, you know, most recently, there's federal dollars that come in to find ways to cure it. Like, how do you cure, you know, I, I keep thinking about, I see these men in these uh, hash, is it hashmat suits, you know, with the, you know, when there's an epidemic, you know, going in to find ways to do research and, and fund programs to address it, find ways to research it to, uh, to uh, get rid of it. And I think that's what needs to happen with homicide. The same federal dollars that, that go into countries or go into cities and states across the country should be dollars that we see from the federal government to help support programs that are making a difference in the lives of young people, you know, ways to improve educational programs so that we have better outcomes for our children academically and educationally, you know, um, you know, poverty. All these things contribute. It's not just the guns. It's, 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 the, it's the systems that, you know, operate, you know, um, and need to be different. You know, whether it's a criminal justice system, educational system, you know, poverty, health, you know, all those things need to be different for uh, communities and families so that violence is not the answer to um, anger and, and things like that. Uh, we just need to overhaul of our thinking in our minds and, and programs to support, you know, change. Do you think the criminal justice system takes it seriously? Oh God, that's that's such a question. I mean, I think that they may take it seriously, but maybe not. Maybe they don't take it serious in a way that they should. Oftentimes, um, I believe that folks who are caught up in the criminal justice systems are oftentimes victims or have been victims and didn't get what they needed, and so as a result, they become part of the problem. So we've got to we've got to find new ways that we even look at that. Like, what do we do? Trauma is a big issue in so many communities. And trauma sometimes, and the pain of trauma, causes other situations to, to occur. You know, um, we find ourselves, when we look at people who have committed crime, like, what's wrong with them? We need to start asking what happened to them, and we need to start addressing it from that perspective. You know, how do we begin to heal our communities of so much of the uh, causes and symptoms of what we see, and I think, you know, that's, that's a stretch. Believe me, Peter, I know it's a stretch to get people to think differently and, and operate differently, but that's what it's going to take before we really see the change that we really need to see, you know, in cities and families and, and communities across this country. Well, certainly we have to ask, what led somebody to commit an act so barbaric as uh-huh. murder? Because children, uh-huh. little babies are born good. That's right. They're not born with guns in their hands. No. And we've got to wonder what happens to them, that they become twisted. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and what do we do to undo that, to untwist them, and if you want to put it that way? You know, how to, what kind of supports and things do they need so that we don't have, we don't pay the price, so that we don't pay the price? We, Ruth and I paid, and many other mothers, you know, in our organization, of course, because we pay the price for that um, what's wrong with them or, you know, what happened to them uh, phenomenon. We've got to look at how do we repair and heal.
so that we don't continue to pay the price for the loss when lives are taken because people are hurting and they have somehow been traumatized to the point that they don't know anything else to do but pick up a gun because of whatever it is that they're experiencing. And it's not only just guns, it's knives, and yeah. automobiles, yeah. and everything else. It's a, it's a mindset, yes. I mean, when you're a city councilman and you're not safe going home, as poor yeah. Councilman O was. Yes, yes. So, so, now, so, clearly so. Something, something was wrong there with that, with that gentleman. I think uh, the councilman probably discovered that from the initial contact. There was something going on there. Mm-hmm. You know, but yet this person was allowed to be able to walk the street and... and, and Fortunately, and, and, you know, he was only stabbed. He could have been murdered. He Absolutely. could have been killed. Came awful close from what I understand. Yes, uh, and what people need to understand, that no one is safe until we're all safe. That's right. It's only a question of location, who gets mm-hmm. shot and who doesn't. All right, Dorothy, let's, let's do the $64,000 question. Gun control. What do you think about gun control? Mm. Um, I, I prefer the term sensible gun laws. Um, I think that people who are responsible gun owners have every right to own a gun, not kind of not trying to control that. <laughs> you know, I think what we're looking at um, is the fact that so many people have guns, and in most cases illegally, who shouldn't have them. They have mental health issues. They have, uh, have anger issues like the person who killed our children. Um, they have criminal backgrounds like the person who killed colleague and Justin. So it's not so much uh, gun control as it is sensible gun laws that will help to keep us safe. And I think that's what we really want to see, laws that are, are um, on the books that actually people are uh, being held accountable for to keep us safe. And there's a, a stronghold, as you know, in the state of Pennsylvania that won't allow any of that, you know, not even to report a gun lost or stolen. Now, if your car is stolen or, you know, what do you do? You pick up the phone and you call the police and you report your car stolen. But if your gun is stolen... Um, you don't have to do that. And when that gun ends up, you know, being sold out of a trunk of a car or being used in a crime, you can just say, oh, wow, I forgot to report that gun. Someone stole it a year ago. Mm. No law that says you have to report the gun lost or stolen. To me, that's irresponsible, number one, for the person, for the gun owner, but it's, it's, it's crazy not to have something in place that says you should be able to do that, that you should have to report that gun. But okay. we can't seem to get anything like that passed, something yeah. as simple as that. Got to wonder, though, how many of those guns that are stolen not reported were illegal guns to start with. Exactly. Exactly. In, in many cases, that is the case. I mean, I'm not going to want to admit I have an illegal gun that got stolen because people are going to ask me what I did with the gun and where I got it from. Exactly. Exactly. And we know, you know, the whole thing about store purchases, people who go in and, and purchase guns for someone else because they couldn't buy the gun themselves. And that's, a, that's you know, that's 
allowed to happen in many uh, retailers, gun stores, you know, across the country. Someone will go in with someone who can't purchase a gun, and they'll buy it and turn it over. you got to wonder how many of those gun store owners know what's going on and look the other way. Yeah, yeah, well, I guess... Yes, they're responsible. Well, they're responsible for being in business to make money, and unfortunately, the way they do that oftentimes is causing blood to run in our streets like a river because of their looking the other way. Mm. But we continue to fight, Peter. We've got to. Uh, doing nothing is not an option. You find this a hard sell to those in power? Depends on who you're talking to in power. Depends on who you're talking to. As I said, some people have not a clue about these kinds of experiences. But then there are others who have a heart and and are empathetic and understand the fight and will fight alongside of us. So it depends on who you're speaking to. Because we have politicians who talk about the tragedy of Chicago and what's going on there as an example. And it's by, not by far the only example. But at the same time, it seems to me that those people who talk about what's going on in Chicago and how horrible it is with gun violence are the same ones who prevent any rational gun laws. Yeah. And you can't forget the folks in Sandy Hook who, you know, that, who lived through that devastation. And you thought at that point, you know, our then-President Obama could have gotten anything passed, you know, or, you know, through that would protect children from that ever happening again. But that didn't happen either. Mm. I, I don't know. <laughs> Sometimes it leaves me sleepless at night. People playing fast and loose with our children's lives. Yep. Yep. Obviously, Mothers in Charge needs cash. What else do you need? We need volunteers. We need, we need people to write checks. We need people to support our mission, to tell others. That's why I'm grateful for the opportunity this morning to share this information with your listeners because I think sometimes, you know, we get what we need oftentimes through folks who would hear your show and say, well, I'm not affected by it. It didn't happen to me. I don't truly understand it, but it's awful. Let me think of ways that I can help. And certainly, any loose cash rattling around the old checkbook or in the old credit card, Mothers in Charge needs it. If people want to make a donation, what do you want them to do? Well, I would love folks to come out to the gala, our 14th anniversary, on June 21st. But they can, and they can, you know, go to our website at mothersincharge.org and donate. There's a donate button. Or they can come out and party with us, party with a purpose, and support the event on the 21st. They can make monthly contributions of a small amount, just something that they can afford to give us. And believe me, every small donation even helps to a great extent. So there's many ways. Or you can volunteer. You can come and help us, like our legislative uh, officials and our congressmen, and all of that, you know, to get them to see what needs to happen around gun legislation. There's so many ways. There's so many ways that people can help us. And just go to a meeting with your legislature, legislator, whether it's one-to-one or a town hall meeting that some of these folks have, and ask exactly. them what they're doing about violence in our streets. 
Yes. We work with a lot of organizations, and just to shout out a couple, you know, the Shira Goodman Ceasefire. Uh, she does amazing work around gun legislation here in Philadelphia. She's executive director, uh, and also in Commonwealth of Pennsylvania. And um, she's always asking for help for folks to make phone calls to the legislators and things like that. And, you know, get involved. You know, if it's not Mothers in Charge, get involved on some level, because there's something that everyone can do to save lives. It was my son several years ago, we don't want to see other mothers coming, as you said in the beginning, we don't want to see other mothers coming to our organization because they had to bury a son or daughter or loved one because of violence. So just get involved to do something. And there's something that each and every one of us can do. And it was Darcy Johnson Spite's son. Maybe tomorrow, God forbid, it could be yours. And yeah. we'll be right back after these messages. It's conversation. My name's Peter Solomon, the WIP Time, 639. And we're back and into the home stretch with Dorothy Johnson Spite, Mothers in Charge. My name's Peter Solomon, and we have a caller this morning, Dorothy. So let's say good morning to Mike from West Deptford. Mike, you're on the air. Your question How are you doing, everybody? Hi. Good morning. Good morning. So I have, I guess, uh, just a little bit of a different perspective than a lot of people in this area. Um, I'm military. I spent a good amount of time in Alaska, and I'm actually heading back there uh, shortly. And up there, they have some of the least restrictive gun laws in the country um, with permitless open carry, permitless concealed carry, uh, very few restrictions on what types of guns you can own uh, other than the federal uh, regulations against automatic firearms, obviously. Um, and there, I kind of, personally, I feel more safe because I would walk into, you know, a Verizon store, and it's a very high military area. You have, like, at least maybe three or four people in the store have a pistol on their hip, which to me kind of it deterred crime because you did not want to pull a firearm in a room where you have four or five people that are trained marksmen. Um, so what, what would you say, I guess, to the people that think, um, a lot of the higher crime areas actually have the more restrictive uh, gun laws. Um, I don't think that people are safer with guns. I think it's, to me it's kind of a false illusion that if you carry a gun, you're going to be that much safer. I think what could very well easily happen in situations like that, that it could be all-out gun battle with everyone walking around like it's the okay corral. Uh, I don't know. I've never been at Alaska. I'm not very uh, knowledgeable on the system there, but I, it doesn't sound like you're comparing apples with apples. I mean, I don't. I don't know. Um, but I don't feel. But some people do that. They're safer with guns. I think it's a false illusion that if you're carrying a gun, you're going to be that much safer. Yeah, I'm just that's afraid. My, that's I my guess opinion. That, uh, a lot of the so basically, my my general opinion has always been that the gun laws. Uh, the more restrictive they get, they're merely just restricting the um, the law-abiding citizens, the, the, the people who really want, if, if someone really wants to murder you, they're not afraid to break in a gun law. And there's so many guns out there that even with <clears throat> increasing laws and restrictions, they'll still be able to get them illegally, like really, really easily. So it kind of just prevents law-abiding citizens from being able to defend themselves. Well, I think what I started off saying was that we have, no uh, issues with folks who are responsible gun owners because we know that people who are responsible gun owners are just that and and it doesn't put anyone at risk if they're yeah. responsible gun owners 
So that's not that's not my argument. My argument is for the guns that are, as you mentioned, that are illegal in the hands of people who shouldn't have them. Yeah, and that I definitely that I definitely agree with because I, I feel like our justice system does a very bad job of of getting severe sentences for those who are found with uh, illegal firearms or um, people who are felons that are not allowed to own a firearm are found with them. I feel like they need to increase their uh, their sentences for individuals like those that just get them off the streets. And I imagine there are many that agree with you on that. Yes, sir. <laughs> Thank you. All right. Thanks for your time. Have a good morning. Thank you, Mike. And you're listening to Conversation. My name's Peter Solomon. It's 94 WIPL Sports Radio. My guest this morning is Darcy Johnson-Spite, founder, executive director of a national movement, Mothers in Charge, working to prevent violence against somebody's child. Be a part of the discussion. Give us a call from the Infinity Xfinity voice line. It's 1-888-729-9494. One eight 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 seven two nine nine four nine four, and on your Verizon cell phone, it's pound nine four nine four. Give us a call. All right. And Peter, another thing that we haven't talked about this morning is suicide. There are so many lives that are taken by young people uh, with guns. If we're talking about guns, it's suicide, and that doesn't that doesn't get the uh, conversation that it deserves as well. There's so many young people and, and, and older people as well who, when they find themselves in, in certain situations and scenarios where they see no way out or see, you know, no light at the end of that tunnel, that they'd use guns to take their own lives. And that's a concern as well. And that's something that, you know, needs to be discussed as well with the unlawful use. And oftentimes, as you said, people who actually own guns but are not responsible gun owners who those guns oftentimes fall into the hands of folks who are depressed or who have, you know, mental health challenges that would use a gun to even take their own life. Or the phenomena of suicide by police officer, suicide by cop. Yes. Another yes, example. Because of, yeah, because of the stress and mental health issues that don't get addressed. And there's another one, too, that concerns me, Dorothy. A responsible gun owner whose young child, a toddler very often, finds a gun, plays with it, and hurts another child or hurts himself. Yeah. We've seen many cases of that in Philadelphia, you know, where guns are, you know, either out where a kid can get their hands, or they're not in a lockbox, you know, or anything like that, and we uh, with a gun lock, and we ask and we've given away with uh, Sheriff Williams and, and Councilman, uh, President Councilman Clark, who has had campaigns where we were actually in different locations throughout the city of Philadelphia, giving out gun locks so that that kind of thing doesn't happen. And that's, that's the worst when you, when you hear of a child who's two or three years old and four or five or, you know, younger, whatever, um, to be able to have access just by the mere fact that someone was irresponsible enough to leave it on a dress or on a nightstand and, and they take their life or the life of their, you know, their sibling or something like that. It's, it's, that's so painful. And we have another caller, Darcy Johnson. Spite. We have Nick from North Philadelphia. Nick, your question or comment, please. Yeah, I pause her very much with the effort that she's doing. But one of the biggest problems I have is being an ex-con who was convicted um, with a gun. That to me, you have to really look at the picture of what's going on in our streets of Philadelphia. These kids are not being educated. 
on the outcome of what's happening um, in our streets. They don't know that when you take a life, you know, what the outcome is, uh, the value of life. These kids today don't know the value of life. Uh, they don't know the consequences of their, their losing their freedom. You know, they're not being taught this in schools or anywhere. And these kids are really don't care because they don't have the knowledge to understand what's going on. I so agree with you on that one. I so agree. I've uh, had the opportunity to serve on the Philadelphia Prison Board uh, under Michael Nutter uh, and now under um, Jim Kenney. And I had an opportunity to see a lot of the young children that are held up on State Road uh, and held, charged as, ju- as adults, juveniles that are charged as adults, and, and having conversation with them, they have not a clue. They think that, that their mom's going to come and get them and pick them up and take them to McDonald's afterwards, and sometimes with these same kids never even see the day out of day again because they are charged as adults with murder, and they never come home at 15 and 16 years old, and they have not a clue when they're in the mission, commission of this crime that this is going to happen. I don't think that they really get it. And I've heard some of them say that, that they, they, didn't, they didn't think that that was going to happen. They never thought about the other person either as well. Yeah, there needs to be education on that. I definitely agree with you that they, that they know what they're doing and what's going to happen, what the consequences are going to be for them. And I agree with you. You know, uh, when I was upstate, you know, I did 17 years, and I saw the kids are coming in and out, uh, mm-hmm. young kids that mm-hmm. didn't even know what was, you know, what's, what's about. You know, what yep. is prison really about? You yep. know, these kids, and, 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 and they're lost. You know, some of these kids are committing suicide in prison. Some of these kids are being raped. And they, mm-hmm. these kids don't realize that they're losing so much when yeah. they pull that trigger. Mm. Yes. You know, yeah. um, and, I, and again, I pause you, and I wish you the best, you know, because you're fighting a battle that, to me, is going to be real hard. You have politics and you have gun lobbyists. You have the NRA against you and everything. And, you know, they use that, the same thing that man says earlier about Alaska. They use things like that. Um, you know, uh, it's better in Alaska because uh, they have all these gun-free laws. But in Alaska, it's not like North Philadelphia. It's not like That's Chicago. Right. That's right. You know, That's right. people don't realize that. It's a total different environment, yeah. you know. And it's a shame that our kids are being killed by this, by the, by the, they're killing each other permanently, you know. And it's a shame that it is easy to get a gun in the city of Philadelphia. I don't care what anybody says. I mean, you can get a gun in Philadelphia at any gun shop in Philadelphia, really. People think that it's, it, it is hard and uh, all these new laws and everything come on. All you need is somebody with a clean record. You pay them enough money and they'll do it. They'll do it. You know, and that gun, they know they can report that gun stolen and get away with it. It's that simple. Sounds you know? like your experiences could be an asset to mothers in charge. Stop in some time and, and maybe there's a way that you can support the work that we're doing. I, I thank you for your call. I mean, it's it's amazing that the perspective you have is from a yeah. personal experience, and that's very, you know, very um, important that people who've had experience take those experiences and, and try to save a life. Thank you. Thank you, Nick. And you're listening to Conversation here on 94 WIPO Sports Radio. My name's Peter Solomon. My guest this morning has been Dorothy Johnson-Spite, 
founder, executive director, Mothers in Charge. Darcy, what are some of the other states where the program is? Well, okay, we have uh, Mothers in Charge in San Francisco, L.A., Kansas City, St. Louis, even here in Harrisburg, uh, in, in Pennsylvania, um, New York, Brooklyn, New York. I'm forgetting a whole bunch of folks. Um, Atlantic City, New Jersey, Sharon Kelly. I can't forget how she's been doing it on the ground for the last eight years or more uh, in Atlantic City, New Jersey, which is an area called Pleasantville, which is right outside of New Jersey that experiences a lot of violence. Um, amazing women who have taken their pain and are working every day in their cities to make a difference uh, around this issue. And a lot of them will be attending our 14th anniversary gala on the 21st of June. And a lot of people are going to be dressed to the nines, as they say, to party <laughs> with a purpose. That's right. That's and, right. And I'm sure Darcy wants to remind men out there, too. This is your issue as well. Absolutely. And we welcome any male from the age of whatever, 14 years old, because even sometimes our young people have to be ambassadors for peace. You know, they have to get the messages out to their peers. So uh, there's something that each and every one of us can do to make a difference. And don't wait until something happens. Get involved now to make a difference. Just, you know, maybe a few hours a month or something like that could make a world of a difference to, uh, to many. Okay. Darcy, we have one final caller we're going to try and squeeze in. So let's say good morning to Sean from Lindenwald. Sean, your comment, please. Yes, how you doing, Darcy? And uh, and uh, Peter, it's good to I'm, you know I'm glad to be able to talk to you today. Um, I just have a comment and pretty much a question. Um, earlier, one of the callers, I guess the, I think the guy from Alaska was talking about how the gun laws were, were a little lax and how it was less crime there. And he brought up the he brought it up that, that you know there was less crime because the gun laws weren't as as powerful. Um, and then the caller after that said that, you know, it's different in Alaska. That's why the gun laws can be less lax because Alaska is not as violent as Philadelphia. But in Chicago, they have some of the toughest gun laws in the country, and it is, has the highest crime rate, gun crime rate in the country, one of the highest gun crime rates with the toughest gun laws. So Chicago is very similar to Philadelphia as far as violence with gun violence. Um, so how do you respond? How do you respond to that? Because I think that's what the the call from Alaska was trying to get through was, you know, that you have you have states with tough gun laws that have higher crime, gun crime rates than the ones that have less gun laws. Well, I, I don't think, and I don't think uh, I communicated that gun laws was a cure all. I don't think that. I think I talked about education and poverty and and just you know, just a lack of understanding and a mindset that contributes to the violence. There's so many aspects that contribute to the violence. It's not just the gun laws. You know, if we had gun laws and that was all, you know, I mean, that, that's not the answer for every aspect of the violence that we see in cities across the country. You know, it, it, it is the poor educational system. It's the criminal justice system that oftentimes fails. It's the trauma that so many, you know, um, folks' mental health that people are experiencing, and there's no way for them to go to begin to heal. So there are many things, many, many, many things that contribute to the violence. It's just not the gun laws. Yeah, that's, that's a good answer. Yeah, I, I agree with that. I totally agree. I, I, don't, I just don't think that the gun laws will deter people from getting, you know, having – We'll stop gun violence, like you said. Uh, specifically, like the one caller said from Alaska, is that it's very easy 
for anybody to get a gun. It's easy to get a gun. And what the gun laws do is they prevent law-abiding citizens from having guns, and then that, that way nobody has guns except for the criminals. They're the ones that have the guns. And it's like uh, the guns, people carrying guns is a deterrent. It's like if you go into a store, all the stores have cameras in, a, in there. Some of the cameras aren't even hooked up. But they have the, the visible presence of cameras to deter theft. And that's the same thing it, it, with, with people carrying guns. If, if law-abiding citizens were, had guns and were carrying guns, then the thieves, uh, criminals would be less likely to do things with, with, you know, in that situation. It's like if you had uh, police officers in schools with guns or teachers that are trained to use guns in schools, then you would have less gun violence in the schools because you would, it's a deterrent for the, for the criminals to, you know, use the guns. All right. Thank you, Sean. We got to go. I'm sorry. And Dorothy Johnson Spite, I want to say thank you for your fine, fine work with <laughs> Mothers in Charge. And I want to tell you, I've been doing this show for over 35 years. And as long as I continue to do the show, Mothers in Charge and you have a friend here at 94 WIP. Thank you, Dorothy. Thank you, Peter. Thank you so much. It's my pleasure. Have a great day. You too. And it's been another edition of Conversation here on 94 WIP. Thank you to Titus, the fabulous Titus, for producing our show this morning. And there's nothing left to say, but stay tuned for WIP Sunday and see you soon.